Hi everyone and welcome to our 2020 Key Cases podcast series. We're bringing you the most um, significant employment cases from this year and we're looking at uh, what employees can take away from them. I'm Adam Rice, one of the senior lawyers in the employment team at Travis Smith and I'm joined today by Chris Wilkinson, one of our associates. Hi everyone. So we've got three cases for you today and they're all about handling dismissal processes. And the first two are on misconduct dismissals. And then the last one is all about redundancy. So that's obviously quite topical at the moment. And, you know, let's just say that some of our cases have some, let's call it interesting facts. <laughs> so, sounds intriguing, Chris. Um, why don't you kick us off with the first one then? Sure. So the first case is called Udin and London Borough of Ealing. And just to warn you, the facts are a bit scandalous. So Mr Udin uh, worked for Ealing Council and he was in his 40s. Uh, now a university student who was in her 20s came to do a work placement with the council. And one Friday night, the team all went to the pub and everyone had a few drinks. Uh, and Mr Udin and this student were seen being quite intimate uh, and there was some touching and even some kissing. They were also seen going into the disabled toilet together. Gosh that is quite scandalous. Agreed, agreed. Uh, unfortunately it does get worse. So the student said that Mr Udin had followed her into the toilet, had locked the door and had unfortunately assaulted her. So a manager was appointed to prepare an investigation report. Mr. Udin was uh, suspended pending the investigation and the manager investigating the matter also urged the student to go to the police uh, because, you know, what she was, what she was saying was so serious mm. and she did. She filed a police complaint. So the investigating manager rep uh, prepared this report and concluded, you know, unsurprisingly that there was a case to answer for gross misconduct. Mr. Udin was invited to a disciplinary hearing and was dismissed. Now, the issue was that before the disciplinary hearing, the student had withdrawn her police complaint after the police had questioned her and pointed out various discrepancies in her story. And the investigating manager had found out about this, but had not passed uh, the information on to the chair of the disciplinary hearing, um, as he had already sent over his report. And uh, Mr. Udin claimed for unfair dismissal. Mm. It still seems like it's very serious misconduct to me, Chris. So um, surely that was a fair dismissal? Well, here's the interesting thing. The Employment Tribunal said that the dismissal was fair, but on appeal, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said it was unfair. The Appeal Tribunal said that the withdrawal of the police complaint by the student and the circumstances around the withdrawal were all relevant to the disciplinary hearing and would have, be, um, and would have influenced the decision maker's decision. So the failure to pass this on to the decision maker meant the dismissal was unfair as the decision maker didn't have all the facts. Okay, that's quite interesting. I guess it shows um, how important it is to get the process right, because if you don't, that can make the whole dismissal unfair, I guess. 
Well, exactly, exactly. So the key takeaway here is that the decision maker must have all the facts. And if these aren't passed on by the investigator or, you know, anyone else involved in the process, it could make the dismissal unfair, even in a case like this, where the employer might still have decided to dismiss anyway. So what's your advice to employers then, Chris? Well, it's really important to remind all managers involved in a disciplinary process to make sure they pass on all relevant information, uh, you know, whenever that comes to light. The investigator can't simply wash their hands um, after they've, um, hand over their, they've handed over their report. Um, you know, if, if any new information comes to light, this must be passed on. So HR really need to uh, remind investigators of this as they're going through the process. Mm, good point. And I guess the same would be true if um, new information came to light after the disciplinary hearing, but before any appeal, um, you'd have to take that into account in the appeal, wouldn't you? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, um, Adam, what have, we, uh, what have we got in our next case? Okay, um, well, the next one also happens to be a little bit scandalous. Um, it's called Dronsfield and University of Reading. So here you've got uh, Dr. Dronsfield, who was a university professor, and he had a sexual relationship with one of his students, which he didn't report to the university. And that, of course, is a breach of the university's rules on personal relationships. I mean, that's, that's not great. No, not, not a good start. Um, but under the relevant university rules, he could only be dismissed if his conduct was considered of an immoral scandalous or disgraceful nature. So another professor was appointed to investigate along with an HR business partner and together they produced a draft investigation report which they then sent off to the university's internal lawyer to review. Now the draft report said there was nothing immoral or scandalous about what Dr Dronsfield had done um, there was no abuse of power, for example. Um, it said it was a consensual uh, relationship. He'd simply failed to report it. That was the only issue. But then the internal lawyer got involved and suggested that those comments should be taken out of the report. Um, so the final investigation report didn't include any opinion about whether the conduct was immoral or scandalous, whether it amounted to gross misconduct. And Dr. Johnsfield was invited to a disciplinary hearing and he was ultimately dismissed for gross misconduct. I mean, let me guess, did he somehow get a copy of this report? Yes, exactly. Um, so he got a copy of the draft report through a freedom of information request, which obviously wouldn't apply to all employers, but he could equally have got that through a subject access request under the GDPR, okay. which of course does apply to everybody. And he noticed, as you might expect, that the findings of the draft report, which were favourable to him, had been taken out. So he brought an unfair dismissal claim, and his main argument was that the lawyer shouldn't have had so much influence over the investigation. Okay, okay. So what did the tribunal decide? Well, the case went back and forth a little bit, but the tribunal ultimately said that the dismissal was fair. And on appeal, the appeal tribunal actually agreed. So it was a fair dismissal. And on this point about the draft investigation report, the tribunal said that the purpose of an investigation is simply to look at the facts, to see if there's a case to answer, and then to decide whether the case should be referred to a disciplinary hearing 
So here, the lawyer was actually right to suggest that the investigation report shouldn't have any conclusions about whether the conduct amounted to gross misconduct or whether it was immoral or scandalous, because those were issues for the disciplinary hearing to decide. Okay, that's interesting. So what, what would you say are the key takeaway points here for, for HR? Well, I think the key takeaway point is it's really a reminder about the different roles of different people in the disciplinary process. So you've got the role of the investigator on one hand, who is simply there to summarise the evidence that they find and say whether there's a sufficient case to justify a disciplinary hearing. And then someone independent should be appointed to chair that disciplinary hearing. And it's up to the chair of the disciplinary hearing to decide whether the conduct occurred, um, whether it amounted to gross misconduct, and then what the sanctions should be. Okay, so the investigator should avoid forming conclusions or suggesting possible uh, sanctions. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, because it's just not their role. It's beyond the scope of the investigation. But of course, when it comes to the disciplinary hearing, the chair of the the hearing has to then come to their conclusion about um, you know whether this amounts to gross misconduct and what the sanctions should be. So it would be a real problem at that stage if you had someone like um, uh, HR or an internal lawyer getting involved in trying to change the decision of the disciplinary chair, because the manager who um, hears the case has got to come to their own decision. Otherwise, you could have an unfair dismissal in those circumstances. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on to our final case uh, which is about redundancy the the facts here are slightly unusual so do do bear with me the employees in this case were physical education teachers at a community secondary school in wales and the relevant council decided to close their school and a number of other schools in the area um, and these were to be replaced with one community school uh, covering primary and secondary school. The employees were told that their contracts would be terminated and that they would be invited to apply for positions at the new school. Uh, and if they were unsuccessful, they would be made redundant. So a couple of employees, including a Ms. Barrett, uh, applied for positions at the new school but were unsuccessful and so were given notice of redundancy. They, unsurprisingly, uh, brought unfair dismissal claims, arguing that they had been um, given no opportunity to make representations or appeal their redundancies. So the council argued that any consultation or appeal would have made no difference as the redundancies resulted uh, from the closure of the school uh, and that was a decision which could not be changed. Uh, the tribunal however and uh, the appeal tribunal ruled that the dismissals were unfair. The tribunal said first of all the process followed by the council here was you know frankly weird Instead of establishing a pool of teachers at risk and then applying selection criteria to decide which teachers to make redundant, the council simply got everyone to apply for their job or a equivalent job in the new school. And this approach provided no opportunity for meaningful consultation about the dismissals. On the appeals point, the tribunal said that the absence of an appeal does not necessarily render every dismissal unfair. 
but the employees in this case had no opportunity to be consulted about the way the redundancy exercise would be carried out and no opportunity to challenge this after the event. And it, would, uh, and it was impossible to say that a consultation or an appeal would have been meaningless as the employees might have challenged the process that led to their dismissal. Uh, and this made their dismissals unfair. Okay, that's quite interesting. So do you think this case means employers should always offer an appeal in a redundancy dismissal? Well, look, clearly the safest thing to do is to offer an appeal. Uh, but, you know, we appreciate that's not always practical, especially where you have a large number of redundancies. There's, you know, there's no general obligation to offer an appeal on a redundancy dismissal. You don't have to offer an appeal. And the tribunal emphasised in this case that failing to offer an appeal would not automatically make the dismissal unfair. But part of the problem here was that um, there had been no consultation whatsoever um, and an appeal, you know, really would have just helped helped with this. Uh, there are other cases where it would be best practice to offer an appeal, particularly where you have pooled employees and applied selection criteria. There is guidance which says it would be good practice to offer an appeal then. Mm, and I suppose if you haven't offered an appeal, but the employee puts one in anyway, um, it's probably a good idea to deal with that, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you if you don't deal with this uh, as an appeal or as a grievance, uh, this could render the dismissal unfair. Okay, great. Thanks. I guess, coming back to the point that you made earlier, you'd want to weigh the risk of not hearing an appeal versus the impact on the business and, I guess, manager's time in having to, to hear appeals um, before you make your decision. Well, that just about wraps up our look at key cases on dismissal for in future. Um, if you do have any questions about anything we've covered, our contact details are on the website, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening, and do keep an eye out for our next two podcasts, where we'll be looking at uh, key cases on discrimination, and then key cases on dismissals for some other substantial reason. Until then, bye for now. Mm -hmm.